Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Premier Doug Ford is making another election promise, this time focusing on gas prices. Hamilton police have completed only half the recommendations laid out in the 2019 Pride Report. More reaction to the Pope's historic apology. Have you thought about co-owning a home? Two Hamilton artifacts are part of the Juno Beach Center's 80th anniversary exhibit on Dieppe. And a big night in music as the Grammy Awards are handed out. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Ford government expected to table legislation today to cut the the gas tax by 5.7 cents a liter effective July the 1st. That just so happens to be after the provincial election. Now, we know that last Friday, the federal government's updated carbon tax added 2.2 cents to a liter of gasoline. The total tax on a liter of gas in Ontario now stands at 35.7 cents. That's a lot. That's up from 33.5. Here to chat about it is Jay Goldberg. He's the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Jay, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing well. Jay, we've talked about the gas tax and Premier Ford's promise four years ago, um, uh, many times on this program, and, and here we go again. Yeah, um, thrilled to be here, obviously, to talk about this topic. We've been pushing Premier Ford to do this for a long time, to finally deliver on his gas tax cut. He ran as a taxpayer candidate. We haven't seen tax cuts yet from the Premier, and so this is a big step. It will be welcome relief. Uh, to drivers, the typical family, if you're filling up a minivan and a sedan uh, once a week over the six-month uh, period that is temporarily going to be cut, uh, that a family could save $190 a year on average uh, over the six-month period, I should say. So this is very good news. Obviously, we would like to see this extended uh, by the, once it's implemented. Uh, it should go from July till December. We'd like to see this made permanent, but we're really glad to see the government make this first step. Now, Ford promised the same thing in 2018. Is is this just a ploy to grab votes, potentially? Well, certainly, um, you know, it, it should attract uh, the, the votes of taxpayers, no doubt. But I think that um, one thing to be clear about is this is not a new promise from Premier Ford. He ran on it. This was something he was elected on in 2018. Uh, and so typically, yes, when you're running for a new term, uh, you make new promises to voters, but this is definitely something that people expected. This is something taxpayers were waiting for. And so I see this really as delivering on a commitment he made four years ago rather than a new commitment now. Although, as you say, unfortunately, the relief won't come until July the 1st. Jason Kenney, the Premier of Alberta, cut the uh, gas tax in Alberta about three weeks after his announcement it came into effect. So waiting this much time is a bit suspect, but uh, again, a good one for taxpayers. Yeah, we'll remain, I think people will remain skeptical until they actually see it, because, yeah, this promise was was made before. In saying that, you know, the carbon tax went up on Friday, the more expensive summer blend of gasoline is on the way. Now seems to be the perfect time for uh, a gas tax cut. Definitely. So we know that typically in the summer, that's when you're going to get your highest gas prices, and so... Uh, it's going to come into effect July the 1st. That's going to be a, a relatively high period, which is which will be good to see uh, this temporary tax cut in place for. I do think that Premier Ford is making this tax cut temporary because he's a little concerned. Uh, the federal government has said in the past that if the provinces lower their gas tax, they will raise it uh, at the federal level because they want um, you know the increased 
price is part of the effect of the carbon tax, and they're hoping uh, to wean people off of uh, gasoline at the pumps, even though we need that to get to school, to get our kids to work. So I think that's why it's temporary. But again, we'd love to see it be made permanent at the end of this six-month period. But again, all of this will be contingent, as you mentioned, on the re-election of the Ford government, as it won't come into effect until July the 1st. Jay Goldberg is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jay is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. We're talking about uh, Premier Ford's expected promise later on today to cut the gas tax by nearly six cents a litre, effective July the 1st. It's crazy to think, Jay, that the total tax on a litre of gas in Ontario is more than 35 cents. It is, and and if you add in the carbon tax and what's going on in terms of, uh, we actually have tax on tax. So when you fill up, you're paying the provincial excise tax, the federal excise tax, the carbon tax, but then the feds and the province charge you sales tax, not just on top of the price of gasoline, but sales tax on top of the taxes. And so actually the price, uh, if you're looking at the taxes, including the sales tax, the actual uh amount that people are paying to the government is closer to 50 cents a liter. So, uh, you know, if people who are filling up today are quite frustrated with prices, it could be about 50 cents lower if we didn't have all those taxes. And so, obviously, that's a very uh, concerning thing. People are frustrated. And I think that's why Premier Ford promised to lower the price of gas four years ago. He's finally uh, going to deliver this year, and we're glad to see it. But, you know, unfortunately, Premier uh, Prime Minister Trudeau it's hiked, he's hiked the carbon tax by another 2.2 cents a liter. He's planning increases all the way every year until 2030, which should make gas uh, up to $2.50 or even past that per liter. Yikes, that is getting way too expensive. Jay, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for breaking this all down with us. Thank you. Jay Goldberg is the Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Uh, Premier Doug Ford, as I mentioned, expected to table legislation today to cut the gas tax by nearly six cents a litre effective July 1st. Will that be enough to get your votes come this summer? Uh, Well, hey, that'll be up to you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We bring it to our board on the status of where we are in those recommendations, and we're very, very encouraged that by beginning of April, we'll have the ability now to do a public uh, outreach to make sure then that we can move this conversation forward, a conversation that needs to occur. That is the voice of Hamilton Police Chief Frank Bergen, recently on the Bill Kelly Show here on 900 CHML. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton. Rick Samprin with you. Happy Monday. Well, Hamilton Police recently released the findings of a survey of the city's LGBTQ plus community as it seeks to act on 38 recommendations from an independent review of the 2019 Pride Festival. Let's dive into this study with Tina Fentner, who led the survey and is a professor in the Department of Sociology at McMaster University. Uh, Tina, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well, thank you. So what did you seek to find out in this study and what did you find? This was a um, an independent arm's length review of the um, ideas and thoughts in the Hamilton's Two Spirit and LGBTQIA plus community. We just gathered ideas on three issues: what are the characteristics of a facilitator to lead the conversation? What should a community advisory panel look like, and what issues should they deal with? And so, when you are seeking to find out this information, what are some of the things that you uncovered? What do people want to see happen? 
Well, there's a lot of consensus around that we need a a strong, highly skilled uh, facilitator. We need a broadly diverse community advisory panel that represents the entire um, Hamilton community and that there are a lot of strong feelings about what issues they feel that uh, the police and the community need to deal with moving forward. There has been, and this issue isn't um, isolated in the defund police movement. Mm-hmm. Was there much chatter about that? Yeah, there was. Uh, there were definitely some comments in the uh, among the the thoughts that were shared with us that um, Hamilton Police Services should be um, reorganized, should be um, have its budget reduced, and um, perhaps not deal with some issues, especially around mental health crises. And is that, uh, you know, I found it interesting just reading through some of the the uh, survey results that the interaction, many people feel the interaction between police and community should be lessened. Why is that? Well, because they it's been harmful. So there uh, were many instances, we didn't share the particulars in the report because we wanted to protect privacy, but people shared their painful interactions with um, with the police department um, and they they shared stories both of sort of under policing where police didn't uh, respond as quickly as they'd hope, but also um, sort of aggressive policing, uh, including negative comments, stereotypes toward LGBTQ community members, and um, some some harmful interactions. So is this where the third party facilitator and even a community advisory panel kind of comes in to bridge the gap of communication? I think that the um, the Bergen report was very clear that the that the lack of trust was in a crisis mode um, between Hamilton Police Services and the LGBTQ community, and so are trying to put some things in place to start the conversation because um, you know there just is so little trust happening right now in some parts of the community that um, it's hard to even get to the first step of moving forward. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Tina Fentner, led this study that um, found out or asked people about their thoughts on the relationship between the LGBTQ plus community and Hamilton Police and a way forward. So Tina is a professor in the Department of Sociology at McMaster University. I guess the question is, can this relationship be repaired? Is there a path to having some kind of harmony here? Uh, it, it absolutely has to uh, improve, right? It has to. We need to get to a place where um, everyone that lives in Hamilton can, has trustworthy police protection for all of their needs. And I know that the police department has taken uh, a lot of the recommended steps. They're in, they've moved. They've moved forward um, within their own um, organization. And now it's really important that they move forward in conversation with the LGBTQ community. We're hearing that police have acted on about half of those 38 recommendations. Is the LGBTQ plus community happy with that? Or are they looking for quicker action? Um, I think that, you know, just a guess, this is not something we asked in the survey, mm-hmm. but I think that there is a, a little worry that of the slowness of this. This report was completed at the end of October last year. It's only being released now, and I know that there are a lot of things on the plate of the Hamilton Police Services, but, um, you know, Pride 2022 is just around the corner, and I do think that people are worried about um, whether the police is, are moving quickly enough. Is there a general sentiment of hope on both sides that, you know, they're hopeful that this relationship can be repaired? Um, 
from the survey responses, I did not get much sense of hope. There were a lot of there was a lot of pessimism uh, in the community responses uh, so far, and so I think that it's really going to take some action on the side of the Hamilton Police Services before some hope starts to build. Well, well, let's uh, hopefully find out uh, that there is a ray of hope and, and some sunshine along the way and that we can get to a better place. Tina, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Tina Fentner is a professor in the Department of Sociology at McMaster University and led this survey that was presented to the LGBTQ plus community as Hamilton police have um, managed to only uh, tackle about half of the 38 recommendations from the 2019 Pride Festival report. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. For the deplorable conduct of these members of the Catholic Church. E vorrei dirvi di tutto cuore, sono molto addolorato. E mi unisco ai fratelli vescovi canadesi. I ask for God's forgiveness, and I want to say to you with all my heart, I am very sorry. And I join my brothers, the Canadian bishops, in asking your pardon. That is Pope Francis apologizing Friday for the Catholic Church's role in the residential school system. Rick Samprin with you. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We've had a few days to digest this apology and the ramifications that go along with it. How do we all feel about it? Patty Doyle-Bedwell is a Native Studies instructor at Dalhousie University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, Patty. Oh, good morning, Rick. How are you today? Good. Yourself? I'm good. You've had some time to think about the Pope's historic apology. How do you feel about it? Well, on one hand, I'm very happy that they've taken at least some level of responsibility for the actions of the I would say they're employees in the residential school. Um, I know when I was watching it on Friday, I was thinking about my mom, who was a residential school survivor, and I know that she would have been extremely happy to hear this apology from the Pope. Um, but then as I've sat, about, sat, sat and thought about it since Friday, um, you know, I, I honor the survivors who went there. I think that it showed an incredible amount of courage to go there and confront the Pope and ask for this apology. I just wish that he had taken a bit more on, like, not only the, you know, bad conduct of a few bad apples in the Catholic Church, but acknowledged the significant role that the Catholic Church played in the development and the running of these schools, and that as uh, Justice Sinclair said through the TRC, that, you know, the residential school system was cultural genocide, and he never mentioned that. I know that the head of the Canadian bishops mentioned about um, cultural genocide, um, but they didn't really, well, they did acknowledge that this apology from the Pope was the first step, and they had a lot more to go to move towards reconciliation. So I've been thinking about that, like, what else does the Church have to do um, to move towards this reconciliation. Do you think the apology is also validation for what many Indigenous peoples had to undergo at these residential schools? And is it, yeah. I don't know if sigh of relief is the statement that we all want to use, but is it is a, is it a weight off their shoulders, do you think? I think so, um, because for the longest time, you know, the stories of the residential school were not believed. Um, there was a court case that 
Nova Scotia in the 30s, where there was um, two Mi'kmaq parents who brought a lawsuit against the um, priest who ran the school for assault. And the judge just threw it out and basically told, and what he told the lawyer who brought this case for these two Mi'kmaq parents was like, how come you got duped by a couple of stupid Indians? Like, so our stories have not been believed. And as many times as the survivors have talked about their experiences in the residential school system, you know, with family, um, well, we believe them, but I'm talking about the outside world. Um, even with um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, there were people, um, I'm thinking of Senator Lynn Bayak, for instance, who didn't believe those stories and how people thought that uh, we were making these stories up to get money or something, like, which is totally ridiculous because <laughs> there wasn't a lot of money to be, get, to be gotten, so to speak. Um, but I think it's important that the Pope believed the stories of the survivors and apologized for their for what happened to them and i think that is uh, validation verification um for the survivors to know that their stories were believed by the highest religious authority in the world and i think it was incredibly brave for the survivors to to speak to the pope and talk about their stories and what happened because you know, when you're Catholic, you're brought up to believe that the Pope is, you know, the ultimate authority. And for them to travel to Rome and talk about that, talk about their stories, I think was incredibly brave. And to have that validation, I think was incredibly healing. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Patty Doyle-Bedwell, Native Studies Instructor at Dalhousie University. We're talking about Pope Francis's historic apology on Friday for the Catholic Church's role in the residential school system. Former Chief of the Assembly of First Nations, Phil Fontaine, years ago, I think it was yes. 2009, asked the Pope to apologize. Why yes. did it take so long? I think that, well, in 2009, there were still um, ongoing lawsuits. I think that the one of the ideas that I've had, and I think other people have had, is this, you know, they didn't want to get sued, and they didn't want to have to pay out damages. I think that was part of what held them back. Um, and I think that even with this apology, it was somewhat guarded in the sense that they didn't talk about, like I said, the role of the Catholic Church in establishing and running these schools, and not just the harm that was caused by individual priests, but the harm that was caused by the entire system. And the other churches, United Church, Anglican Church, they did apologize. And I think the Catholic Church took a long time because they were, they didn't want to acknowledge their responsibility. And they were, I think they were probably concerned about the liability issues that were involved in that. Um, Because when the survivors were suing, you know, when they went through their common experience payment, when they had the class action in the late 2000s, um, 2007, 8, 9, um, the Catholic Church had, was into, people were having to sue each individual parish and not the whole Catholic Church. Um, so I think that was concern about liability, basically. We got a minute they left to, to pay. Yeah, we sure. have a, we have a minute left to talk about this, Patty. The, the Pope is expected to visit Canada sometime yeah. this summer. What do you expect will happen when he does come here? 
Well, I'm wondering where he's going to go. Um, the Mi'kmaq people have had the longest relationship with the Catholic Church, so I think it would be important for him to come to Nova Scotia. Um, I think it would be important for him to, to again, listen to the survivors and, um, and maybe come up with a more fulsome plan to move forward in terms of reconciliation. I know that the bishops have mentioned that um, when in their press conference on Friday. So I hope that he comes with a plan, um, not just an apology, a plan to move forward for reconciliation and how he's going to do that. Um, you know, having been brought up Catholic, I think that, you know, the institutional church caused a lot of damage, and I want him to rectify that damage in some way by action. An apology needs action, and I'm hoping he comes with ideas of action. I'm with you. We're only about halfway there, if that, and uh, we'll we'll see what happens this summer. Patty, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Patty Doyle-Bedwell, Native Studies Instructor, Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Is there such a thing as co-owning a home, and is it a good way to deal with housing affordability? Well, one of those answers certainly is yes. The other is, well potentially debatable. David Coletto is the CEO of Abacus Data and has looked at this issue and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning, David. Good morning, Rick. How are you doing? Good. How are you? I'm well, thanks. Uh, you guys have conducted a study on co-ownership and whether or not it is a solution to addressing Canada's uh, housing affordability crisis. What did you find? Well, we found first that, not surprising, that that housing affordability, accessibility uh, is perceived to be a big problem across the country. Um, you know, and, and that, and just to keep in mind that almost all Canadians think that every Canadian should have the opportunity to own a home. So what we did for Key, which is a, a real estate technology company that is building a platform for co-ownership in the country, uh, we found that that given the the struggles people are feeling, particularly younger people, new Canadians, uh, in in being able to achieve the dream of owning a home, that co-ownership, this idea, this, this relatively I guess, new model for many people is very appealing. And why is that? Well, I think one of the biggest challenges that, that many people face in the current market, and it's been this way for, for a number of years, is that you know saving enough for a down payment uh, is seen as the biggest hurdle. And so what co-ownership allows you to do is make a smaller initial investment. So you don't need to save up, say, 20% or, or even 10%. At only 2.5% of the value of the property, you can get equity in it and you, you share the ownership with um, other investors. And over time, instead of, for example, paying rent, you can pay uh, towards the, um, the loan and, and, and building equity in that home. So what it really does is it gets you on the home ownership ladder um, earlier, perhaps, than you would otherwise be able to and take advantage of the benefits of, of equity and, and ownership um, so that if you were to sell that property, you could take that equity and and move on and, and perhaps buy a, a property outright. I see that you also studied the um, comparison between co-ownership and rent-to-own. What did you discover here? Well, here we asked, we gave people some insight into what a rent-to-own program was, which is, is, is similar, but, but importantly, it, some, some important differences in terms of how the model actually works. And across the country, when we put both models up against each other, seven out of 10 pick co-ownership as their preferred um, way of, of getting onto that homeownership ladder compared to 30% who said rent to own. So 
you know, again, this is a concept that's very new to many people. It, you know, we often are in the dichotomy between rent and own. This is an alternative model, especially in the housing market that we have in Canada now that, that is very appealing to people. David Coletto is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. David is the CEO of Abacus Data that has studied housing affordability through the uh, lens of co-ownership and whether that is a solution to address the housing affordability crisis in this nation. While co-ownership makes financial sense, did you dig down deep into some of the different dynamics that go along with it? We did. And one of the things we did is we shared some specifics about it, knowing that, that many people, you know, didn't have a lot of familiarity with the model. And, and what we what we learned is that things like, um, you know, buying at your own pace, um, being able to build equity, um, not worrying about, you know, that six, the dreaded 60 day notice from your landlord that you have to vacate, um, you know, an apartment or a rental unit. All of those were, were, were seen as as real strong um, attributes of, of this co-ownership model. And so what I think this shows us is that if, if, if policymakers, if, if the real estate community sees, uh, builds this model up, um, I think there's going to be a big demand for it. You know, Key, for example, in Toronto has a number of, of properties that it's developing. It's got a waiting list of, of 50,000 people who, who want to, to experience homeownership who, who, who are craving it, who, who believe it's something they should do. And now they're just looking for the opportunity to do it. And, and co-ownership is, is one path for them. Another thing you also looked at, too, and when people, many people, um, you know, try to drum up money for a, a down payment, they'll turn to their RRSPs. That's mm-hmm. not an option for co-ownership, is it? It's not, um, right? The, the, the rules around that are, are very specific and don't include co-ownership as, a, as an option. And what we found Given the widespread appeal of it, you know, more than eight out of 10 people say you should be able to, to access that, that RSP, especially um, for first time home buyers. So if you've got some savings built up, if you were to buy a, a home in the traditional model, you could use a, a portion of that, that RSP. Right now, that's not an option for, for co-ownership. So there's, there's, there's clear support for changing those rules and allowing people to, to use that savings um, for, for co-owning a, a property. With uh, house prices uh, more than doubling over the last number of years, uh, is the expectation that more and more Canadians will turn to co-ownership? Well, I think it's an, a really appealing option. I mean, you know, the last two years in particular, the pandemic, I mean, your listeners in Hamilton know full well what happens to a market when, um, you know, it, it, it's it's becoming incre- crazy expensive closer to Toronto. Hamilton is now seen as a uh, a really appealing community. And, and I think there's a lot of growth happening. I do think co-ownership, according to this survey, is seen as, as an option, as an alternative. And that, I think, is really what people are looking for, right? They're worried about the housing market. They're not necessarily seeing a lot of solutions in the window. And so when you've got this kind of crisis mentality, innovation and new ideas, I think, can take root. And, and I think this survey confirms homeownership should be one of those um, that, that, that is available to, to Canadians. And I think what we're hoping to do with this survey is get more people aware of it and, and to convince policymakers that it, um, you know, they, they need to think about how they, they, they regulate the real estate market and, and homeownership rules to make this more attractive and more available to more people. Well, the average price of a house in Hamilton hovering around a million dollars. I'm sure many of our listeners who are not in a house right now are contemplating uh, the co-ownership option. David, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for joining us. 
Thanks, Rick. Have a great day. You too. That's David Coletto, the CEO of Abacus Data. One thing to keep in mind if you are considering the co-ownership route, and we've discussed this on the Golfy Real Estate Show on 900 CHML Saturdays at uh, 9 a.m., shameless plug, is that there's got to be some ground rules. You have to have a document in place in which both parties or however many parties are involved uh, sign and review and uh, make sure you're all in agreement because uh, there are certain rules that you have to abide by so this co-ownership relationship does not come crumbling down. But it is an option that many will consider, that is for sure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The Juno Beach Center Association is holding an 80th anniversary exhibition on Dieppe. And, very interestingly, two Hamilton-related artifacts will be a part of this exhibit. Marie-Yves Viancourt is the Exhibitions and Development Manager at the Juno Beach Center and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Marie, how are you today? Good, thank you. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks for joining us this morning. So, as I mentioned, the, the center is launching a new exhibit. It's called From Dieppe to Juno, 80th Anniversary of the Dieppe Raid. Tell us about this exhibition. Yes. So we just inaugurated it a couple of weeks ago, and it's going to be on for a couple of years, just in time. So for the 80th anniversary, as you said, the exhibition explores the pluricity of voices related to the Dieppe raid. So we didn't want to just dive into the details and the technical aspects of the raid, but also its ripple effects into Canadian history. So we talk about mothers, wives, uh, the experience of prisoners of war, the propaganda that was related to the Dieppe raid. And we also talk about the links that it has to Juno Beach, being that the exhibition is anchored on Juno Beach. Often people make uh, the comparison to Juno Beach, you know, like the lives lost on Dieppe, uh, later saved lives in on Juno Beach, which is often a, a shortcut that people take in history that we try to fully explain in the exhibition why that is and why that often can't be that that sort of quick explanation to Dieppe and Juno. So it's it's uh, it was a challenging exhibition to put together and we have 72 artifacts in it, uh, 17 of which come from Canada. We're really lucky to have the participation and the help of Canadian families and museums across the country to showcase some incredible artifacts. And we understand that there's a couple of artifacts from Hamilton. Yes. So uh, one of the artifacts from Hamilton is uh, a cross that's made out of Dieppe Chert, the famous stone that make up the beaches at Dieppe. And it was given to Padre Foote, who was um, the Padre of the Royal Hamilton Light Infantry Regiment, who was there at Dieppe. Uh, and he was captured by the Germans. He had the chance to actually leave the beach and go back to England and he actually chose to stay with his men and that meant captivity for three more years um, inside of Germany. So that cross was given to him after the war uh, by a fellow soldier and we were fortunate enough to get our hands on it and showcase his story um, and his story of bravery actually of uh, being able to to make that decision of of uh, not returning home and staying with his men, the um, the other artifact we have is the cover of Time magazine of September eighteenth, nineteen forty four. As some of you might know, it's a, more of a positive aspect about the raid of Dieppe. But after Juno Beach, after the Battle of Normandy, um, 
basically the Canadians were victorious and they went on to liberate the Channel ports in 1944 in September. And of course, uh, who was chosen to liberate Dieppe in 1944, the second Canadian Infantry Division, the same division that had fought so bravely on uh, that fateful day of August 19th, 1942. So when the Canadians entered Dieppe for the second time, for the good time this time, um, they were welcomed by hordes of French civilian population who were clamoring them and inviting them to liberate their city. And uh, Krirar, who um, was the commander of the first Canadian Corps uh, at the time, uh, was a Canadian general, of course, and he was summoned to a meeting in London uh, the same day as the Canadians were to enter Dieppe, and he refused to go. Um, and when he was asked why um, he was refusing to attend this meeting in London, he said that he wanted to be in Dieppe with his men. He evoked that there were 800 good reasons for him to be in Dieppe and not in London at the time, the 800 reasons being the amount of war debt that we suffered that day. So the, the cover of the Time magazine is dedicated to Krirar, who was from Hamilton. And uh, it's not very often that you see Canadians on the top of a cover of a Time magazine, an American magazine. So we're lucky to have this artifact as well to present um, that story of Krirar, who disobeys Eng English orders to, to attend an important meeting to be with his men, a, a quite touching artifact. That's amazing. We only have about a minute. Where can someone get more information about the exhibit and uh, even uh, check it out for themselves? Uh, the exhibition is in France, although we have a lot of assets on our website, junobeach.org. And uh, the exhibition is going to be on for a couple of years. So we're hoping that with COVID measures being lifted up, we have more Canadians at the centre to visit this exhibition. And we hope that Canadians who visit Vimy Ridge or Dieppe make it by Juno Beach with this exhibition. That would be quite an emotional trip for many, I'm sure. Marie-Eve Viancourt, thanks for the time today. Thank you so much. Marie-Eve is the Exhibitions and Development Manager at the Juneau Beach Centre. From Dieppe to Juneau, 80th anniversary of the Dieppe Parade runs until December 31st, 2023 at the Juneau Beach Centre in Normandy, France. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Um, whoa, um... God, uh, thank you so much to the Recording Academy. This is my biggest dream come true. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin with you. That's Olivia Rodrigo, who won the Grammy Award last night for Best New Artist. And why not? What a fantastic year that Olivia has had. Uh, we're also going to talk about a couple of other things apart from the Grammys. Number one, you heard a little sync off the top here. Well, there's some nostalgic merch up for grabs, courtesy of the legendary boy band. And we'll talk a little, if we have some time, uh, about Canadian songwriters getting compensated by digital platforms. They don't get as much as you might think. Eric Alper is a music commentator and publicist and joins us now on GMH. Eric, good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. How, how would you rate last night's Grammy Awards? Well, nobody got slapped. So, <laughs> so A+. Plus. Um, all good. I mean, we're talking about the music. We're talking about the the performances and who won, which is always really great. You want to kind of stay a, a little bit away from the controversy as much as possible these days. You know, it's not the MTV Video Awards where, 
you want to court the world's attention and have it all on you. But with the Grammys, though, I think, you know, the right focus was was put on there. You had John Batiste, who a lot of people are waking up to the news that he won an armful of Grammys, including Album of the Year. And a lot of people know him from the band leader as um, on the Stephen Colbert show. But I think that, you know, his album is currently number one on iTunes on and Amazon went right up the charts right after the Grammys. So, you know, hugely charismatic, exuberant, did one of the best performances of the night when he did Freedom, and uh, Olivia Rodrigo winning three, including the pop categories and Foo Fighters cleaning up for their rock categories as well. So uh, good night all around. Usually when the Oscars are handed out, the winners are usually, uh, or at least people who are familiar with uh, you know, the, the Oscars and, and the movies that win the big awards or the actors that win the big awards, many people will kind of uh, migrate to those movies and eventually watch them. There's a big you know, surge of demand for those flicks. Does that go um, in the same sense with the Grammy Awards as well? Do people consume the winner's music after the Grammy Awards? Yeah, you know, one quick look this morning at Amazon and iTunes and Spotify sees a lot of Silk Sonic, the the funk super duo group um, consisting of Bruno Mars and Anderson Pack. They won four last night, including Record of the Year, Song of the Year, Best R&B Performance, and Best R&B Song. That's in the top five. And John Batiste is in the is in the, that top spot. Olivia Rodrigo, who you think that's the funny thing about it, right? Like you think. Everybody in the free world knows about Olivia Rodrigo and Billie Eilish. But even when you sell 10 million copies of a song, there's still 400 million people who don't know it yet um, in North America. So Billie Eilish is zooming back up the charts um, thanks to her amazing performance last night. And she wore a T-shirt with the Foo Fighters drummer Taylor Hawkins on it paying tribute to him. Um, And the Foo Fighters had a tribute last night as well. That album zooped back on the charts it's number five in uk and in canada after like 400 weeks of being on the charts. so yeah there's still that little bit of a grammy bump that happens um but like everything else it's pretty fast it kind of goes away within a week or so but i think for john batiste though he's different you know he's he's to me the year that michael jackson won for thriller and became a cultural moment Hmm. or paul simon winning for graceland um I think John Batiste's album, We Are, is going to be one of these moments that when people look back on the last 18 months worth of music, that album is is going to be in most people's homes that wouldn't normally buy an album or a vinyl record. Well, that's pretty cool. We only got about uh, 40 seconds or so to talk about InSync launching an all-new merchandise collection called the InSync Lifestyle Collection of, <laughs> of, of stuff, including uh, some 90s wear. What do you think about this? Right on time. You know, nostalgia has to go through a little bit of period when it's not cool to like them. Even the Beatles went through that in the 1970s. But then suddenly around, you know, 1990, people started opening up their wallets to the Beatles. And then Sync and New Kids on the Block and Backstreet Boys are definitely going to have their moments this decade as we all get older and we all want to have that little bit of nostalgia about how great those teenage years were. I would say this, the clothing doesn't look that bad. It could have been a lot worse, <laughs> as, as we know. Well, you know what? It doesn't come with an official hairstyle. Of that. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty great. You, know, you put on the T-shirt, suddenly your hair goes back to how it was back in 1991. That would be a disaster. Oh, geez. Yeah, you're telling me. Eric, appreciate the time today.
Great. Thanks for having me. Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.